Hey everybody, TalkingBook.pub is a non-profit audiobook publisher of independent literature. We are located in Asheville, North Carolina, and because we are a non-profit, uh, donations and help from people like you who love these books and love these recordings really helps a lot. So if you want to get involved, donate to our Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash TalkingBook, or go to our website, TalkingBook.pub, and read about our mission, send us an email, give us a call, whatever you want to do. But enjoy the episode. Thank you. Hey everybody, Chris Hartram, the Talking Book Podcast. Today we have a special treat for you. Um, a few nights ago, Bud Smith, Michael Bible, Devin Kelly, Ashley Bryant Phillips, Nicole Brown, Jessica Jacobs. We had a uh, we had a house party. They all came down here, all these writers, to the Talking Book House in Asheville, North Carolina, way up in the mountains, and <laughs> we did a reading. Uh, everybody read. Um, Bud Smith read from his new book, Double Bird, out from Modeling House. Michael Bible um, has a new book out, Empire of Light from Melville House. Um, but yeah, everybody was awesome. Uh, what a what a fucking time that was from those ladies and gentlemen. Bunch of people here, drank a bunch of rum punch, had a great time. So that'll be like, um, we'll call it Talking Book House 1. Um and we'll do more of them. So people, I'm always telling people to come here. I probably say too much, but everybody get your asses down here or up here, whatever, over here. Um, and we'll do another reading party at the house. But um, but yeah, so you're going to hear the reading. You're going to hear all these people. Um, hope you like it. I think it was great. It was cooler if you were here, but this is cool too. We mic the room so you could listen to it. But anyway, here we go. Talking Book House 1. Everyone, thank you so much for coming. Uh, for people I don't know or who've never been here before, my name's Chris, and this is, I guess, the Talking Book House. Uh, Talking Book, we're a nonprofit 501c3 audiobook publisher here in Asheville, and we've worked with some of the writers that are going to be reading tonight. Um, it's going to be fun. So, uh, I guess first off, we're going to go with uh, Devin Kelly. Devin Kelly, uh, he's got a book, Blood on Blood, that came out from Unknown Press. Um, got his MFA from Sarah Lawrence College. And uh, just met him today. Seems like a really nice guy. So, <laughs> Devin, come on up here, buddy. Give him a round of applause. Thanks for coming, everyone. Thanks. Round of applause for Chris for organizing this. Yeah, I love Chris too. Uh, how's everyone doing? Good. Thanks for coming. Asheville's very nice. There are beautiful babies, um, beautiful people. There's good barbecue. I know of two locations. Uh, all right, so I'm gonna read uh, three or four poems. Read one off my phone to start, because the world has phones in it. Um, this is called the nose to nose perspective. I am looking at you very closely. You say stop when I say I am counting all your freckles. I pretend to stop, but guess what? I don't. I haven't finished counting yet. I'm up to a million and seventy-four. Your face is a giant freckle. I never knew I could love the sound of someone breathing until I met you. In the amusement park of our lives, a roller coaster is just a stub toe in the morning, something to set us off before the future inevitably does. 
I like the look of your face from a nose-to-nose perspective. Your eyes as big as birds. It is the moving apart that hurts. People are launching themselves into space and we are still here. We will always be here. Isn't that weird? Even when they send the first pup to fetch the first gravityless ball and project the pup's first gravityless trying to bite the ball through his helmet's glass, we will laugh. We will laugh so hard because it will be cute and it will come at a time when we need more cute. Isn't that weird that nothing changes? It only gets a little worse. Come closer. I want your warm breath breathing warm like against my warm breath, creating a small ecosystem of warmth the size of a baby when a baby is very small. Can you believe every time we kiss a fucking baby? And not just any baby, a very warm baby. Can you believe every time we kiss 1,075,000,076, can you believe I never knew I could love someone so badly I wouldn't want the moon? Um, thanks. Cool. Um, great, everyone's doing great. This is another poem. Um, this is uh, called Breathless, I Say, I Am Breathless. Breathless, I say, I am breathless. And you say what? And I say, I'm breathless. For what, you say? Or even how can you say such a thing, given that you are breathless? I gather myself. Having breathed all my breaths out, having breathed all my breathiness like a fucking breathosaurus waiting for the asteroid to strike and say, I am breathless because of the light of day and the way a whale's eye is not proportional to its entire vastness. I am breathless to see this vein of mine and how it snakes the canyon of my body as if I have been alive and rooted through forever, a walking feet of erosion. I am breathless to be so close to being a river, breathless to be even tangentially related to buffalo, which stubborn and greedy wait patiently to die as if they know better than us what we can do to us. You see what I mean? Just last week, a ship's hole sliced the skin off a whale and we named him Scar as if to mock him. I guess we aren't ever going to get better at being better. I know you're trying and I am breathless at all your quietness in the face of the world's implicit breaking, the fault lines making mountains underneath the calm anxiety that is your stepping out into the day. And I swear to you, I wanted this poem to be about joy because I am breathless as all breath about joy. Sometimes I watch the slow parade of barges float down the Hudson and feel in such lethargic passage a great heave of joy, as if then and only then I knew a nation could be founded on joy and joy alone, but perhaps it is too late for joy. And some might, in this dusk of morning, argue it is too late for joy at all. And I, all I want to do is pull the breath of your body and match your breath with mine, the way I tried while napping on my father's belly to braid the beating of my heart to his, if only to keep him around just a little while longer. It is quiet here. I am a quelling. Last night, I witnessed planes stalled in a holding pattern within the clear black of sky, like string lights hung in winter by a kind and patient neighbor, and I, for a moment, was breathless 
that such waiting might happen just atop our heads, while below us and into forever there is the rushing, hushing hum of breathing that is this life. It is morning now, and I am tired, but ready for love. Outside, it is snowing above the city, and I am breathless for that and how it falls like a breath breathed out. Thanks. Um, so I'll read two more. That's cool. Cool. I, uh, I, have, I had a book come out from Civil Coping Mechanisms called In This Quiet Church at Night, I Say Amen. Um, but we've been torn around, Ashley, Bud, Michael, and I, and I don't have any copies left. So I shouldn't have even mentioned it. Yeah, yeah you can. There's an internet. <laughs> Better or worse? Okay, thanks. Um, cool. Uh, this is called Enough. Enough. You pray tonight the moonshine will shimmer candlewick and melt light across your floorboards, that your father will not die of a pain to hollow out his bones, that the ache in your chest is only just a tree growing inside your body. There are people on sidewalks kissing. They tiptoe into sky until the sun slants between them. Dawn arrives again and again, sometimes gold, sometimes carrying yesterday's blood back from around the world, turning bird to black. You hum a word that isn't enough, enough in your mouth until it becomes enough. The swarm of infinity lies in the thrumming of a pair of wings. There's a world here spinning. See how it still spins when you look at it. How you know there are people here, how they're so hard to see. How the birds blur means each wing alone is doing its job. It's enough, isn't it? What the world does to make you know your smallness. How it's big and wide and everything you can't do to conquer and everything you wouldn't want to anyway. I have a father who is still alive. And most days I am held by the soft miracle of kissing. There's a bird alighting above a couple's head. I want to tell them they are like trees, but I don't want to scare the bird away. Thanks. Um, <laughs> oh, a guy's here. Um, so thanks so much. I'm going to read one more. Um, and that's it. And then I'm going to introduce our next reader and everyone else. I'm so stoked to be reading with so many people who are so great. Um, Um, cool. Um, this one's called When I Look Up and See a Hill and Over It, I Know My Father Stands Waiting for Me. Uh, I was running the Boston Marathon one year and it was very hot and I started walking and my dad was at the top of a hill and I was like, fuck. <laughs> not making you proud and uh sorry sorry it's a little long but i'll read and then i'll stop and i'll not talk for the rest of the night um it's about that so remember the title cool i slow down saying with words out loud this isn't how it should be before dwindling to a walk the race goes on and people pass without stopping and the sun above gleams a brutal heat too soon for this early morning mo moment of spring there aren't even leaves to burn my skin, though, already that nascent red of birth. What pointlessness to be running for no cause but to finish and then to finish exhausted just to find cause again. I've done this too many times. 
and thought before this marathon while stripping in the corral of all those times and the way in which I might in just this one moment prolonged be a fucking god and perform at least a little better than them now. Well, I'm not. Blame the sun's heat, hellish. Blame Icarus for ever thinking he could fly. Blame Sisyphus for the constant ascendant pushing. Blame punishment for existing. Blame the gods we have invented in order to give ourselves new people to please when we don't have anyone on earth. This isn't how it should be. The masses pass me like highway cars fixed geared solely for arrival. When I was younger, my friend Ted used to vomit before every high school race and then during. We were one as fast as the other, and I often found myself behind or beside when he knew he had to chuck. He did it without breaking stride. Just a cheek turned over his right shoulder, the vomit's liquid brown, one hurled mighty stream vaulted toward the ground. I will remember this forever. Not because of how odd it seemed, it didn't, but because he kept on running. And we would laugh about it later, and no one would emerge from the tree line to say, Hey, Ted, maybe you should get that checked out. At mile 17, a child hands me a popsicle and I high five his tiny palm as if to say I'm fine or famous or that this was all planned from the start, that I would stop on this very hill nine miles to go to make this one child feel both needed and believed in. His father's voice from hours ago still echoing in his ears, the way he pulled the frozen sugar sticks from the freezer while delivering a sermon about the necessity of kindness as in, yes, my son. People will love you simply because you offer a free token in a moment you think of need. But kid, come on, you know that's not true. We believe in other people's reciprocity to make us feel better of our annoyances, to help us believe that we are not, in fact, the nu nuisances we mistake for bees. And who is to say we are anyway? That the gathering for this event of life is not just as important as life itself or the vomit, the blind man I ran beside for 15 miles, or my father waiting patient and hardly scared as he has done irreverently throughout my irreverent journey. This isn't how it should be, but it is. And I'm taking my sweet ass time because there are things I know for certain that the sun is hotter than it's been in years that my legs ache, each wearied pulse stifled by lactic acid, that the hordes of hundreds passing me are children just the same, that the world is not one for us and we are not for it, that distance is a human measure made to provide proper means of calculating the effort we might be forced to give in order to love or die or simply see someone for a cup of coffee before retreating back, way back further into our lives where we turn the lock screen on and reset our creative numbered passwords and whisper alone our ritualistic mantras while our broccoli steams and our holistic remedies ready themselves. That one step is just a step, just as one beat is a beat, just as one journey bleeds steeply like one hill into another, that an over implies an under, that a valley shallows up a canyon, that a cliche earns its please don't use this in your story ability only after such words warranted steady and persistent repetition, as if it took people a literary century to realize that yes, love is in fact, and not just simile, really like a rose, and it hurts pretty fucking bad when you get close enough to touch, that if we are nothing, there must be something we can be. Hey Ted, we haven't talked in years, 
and I deleted my Facebook almost a decade ago, and I don't even know how to know if you're alive now. I am praying to you to hurl me forward like your rusting arch of vomit before my walk becomes a crawl, before my crawl becomes a stillness, before my stillness becomes not a virtue, but a pain, before my pain becomes a weight I cannot hold without asking everyone who has passed me by. I will have to yell, and I don't like yelling. I don't have the stomach for the sound it makes of my body. This hill is long. Over it, I know my father stands waiting for me. When I see him, I will smile, even if it is hard. When I reach the finish, I will pray, even if I don't believe. When I rest my bones for a day, a week, an entire season, I will find my shoes and I will go again. Thank you. Um, Our uh, next reader is the great Ashley Bryant Phillips, who was born and raised in this great state in Woodland, North Carolina. Uh, her work has been featured in such magazines as Dr. Doctor. She's wonderful. We've been reading with her for the past few days, and her work is beautiful, lyrical, awesome. I'm so stoked that you get to hear Ashley Bryant Very honored and thankful to be here. Thank you all for coming. Um, do y'all know that Tim McGraw song, Just to See You Smile, I Do Anything That You Want Me To Do. It's really good. And when I got in the car with these guys, even I think Bud was singing it too, right? We were all singing it together. And um, I apologize that I'm reading off my phone, but Tim McGraw does make an appearance in here. And it just felt right to read this piece. Um, after we all sang that together. So thank you all again. Um, the title of this is Earth to Amy, and I'm just going to read the start of it um, to a nice stopping point. Earth to Amy. Rami was just talking about that hot dog fundraiser he wanted to throw in the parking lot of his corner store for a playground in Rich Square. I was buying Doritas, and he was ringing me up saying, the kids need swings. All children should be able to swing. Rami was good like that, always smiling. Everybody knew that if you didn't have the money to pay him that day, he'd give it to you anyway. But now he's dead, just like that, a heart attack. And I'm looking at a picture on my phone from where we and Mama drove to his store last night. We came from everywhere to leave all colors of flowers outside, leaning up on all the windows, carnations, roses, ribbons, candles. I'd never seen nothing so pretty. I'm sitting here at work looking at that picture, reading the signs folks had left. Gone too soon, forever in our hearts, always loving you. He had a wife and daughter, and Seymour sweeping in front of my register talking about how folks where Rami's from don't believe in embalming the body. See, Rami's from one of them Middle Eastern countries, can't ever remember which. His family came here three years ago. His daughter's about my age, goes to run at Chowan Community College. He and her mama, her and her mama cover their heads They's the first people like that around here to do that <laughs> and to come here to live of all places. Seymour wants to know if my cousin Craig's going. Craig's the one that found Rami. He'd been up at the lodge drinking, and when he got ready to leave, he saw Rami's car up at the road. Rami was right there at the stop sign, his foot on the brakes, headlights shining, his eyes was open, dead. I tell Seymour, I don't know if my cousin Craig's going. 
We ain't talked about it. I ain't my cousin's keeper. I go back to my phone and pull up a picture of my boyfriend. He's sitting on his tailgate. You can see the creek down behind him. He's smiling at the grind. I mean, he's not really my boyfriend. We haven't had to talk about it and make it official, but it's been going on now six months. The picture's at Bull Hill, where we did it in the back of his truck for the first time, that truck in the picture. He was bleeding from his mouth, but didn't tell me. And I couldn't tell in the dark, couldn't see nothing but what the moon shined on. And a moon that night, it was just a sliver like a fallen fingernail, a white leaf, and it made shining lines on the bottom of the truck bed. He was holding me, taking me out of this place. One until we were back inside and he told me to look at myself in the visor mirror. Did I know where it was? There was blood in my hair, on my cheeks, and I could see it on him in the green radio light. He told me he'd bit the inside of his cheek earlier that day because he was so hungry. He pulled his mouth open with his finger like a hooked fish and showed me the wound, said I could touch it if I wanted to. I didn't want to. Um, <laughs> he said he felt it start bleeding again when he was using his mouth down on me. Said he didn't want to say nothing, didn't want to stop, didn't want to interrupt how well we was reading each other's bodies. He said he thought I might like it, the blood. And I did like it a lot. He says he's never been with anybody like me before. Says that we get together so good. I can't help but think he might be one of the greatest loves of my life. His name is Russ. He's one of the coal ash workers that's come down here for the coal ash plant. Don't really know what all he does there. I think he tends to this lake they put the ash in, checks it all the time for leaks. When they started that plant, they brought folks like Russ down here from Ohio, the country part. He says there's country parts of Ohio just like the South. He was married there, got two little girls. Can't listen to Tim McGraw songs because they remind him of them. I've heard him say one is real sensitive to loud signs. She cries when his wife warns the vacuum. That's about all I've heard him say about it. Seymour thinks I daydream too much, jokes that he'll fire me. He'll hit the side of my register when I'm taking notes in my mind, thinking about my squirrels. He thinks that's funny. Slow as it is in here, I'm so bored. I've told Seymour that Food Line and the Market in Rich Square have better deals on meat, and folks will drive all the way out of town for that any day. We ought to sell the chicken feet for cheaper, for one thing. But my squirrels got people coming in here. I ain't sold one yet, but people come in looking. See, I fix up taxidermy squirrels like people, put them in their own little worlds. I want to do as many as I can before my fingers start to hurt me too much. I have the young people uh, arthritis in my fingers and knees. The doctor's starting to put the pain shots in them soon, and the shots cost double the pills. I don't know where the money's going to come from, especially since we're going to have to put daddy in a home. So I'm selling my squirrels here, but I don't really think anyone's going to buy them. They sit up near the door on the top shelf of the candy racks. And I know that if Russ would just let me use his computer to get to the Internet, I could use eBay. I've seen that on the commercials. You can sell all sorts of things on there. And I know somebody would really want this red era Taylor Swift one holding a Barbie guitar. They'd pay big money for this Amelia Earhart. That plane behind her is the one she died in. I cut that picture out from National Geographic. But the Cinderella is my favorite. I took the blue frilly lace sock um, that I wore when I was a baby and sewed it onto some pantyhose, glued a sequin halo around her head for a crown. She's how I met my boyfriend, Cinderella. 
when Russ find her at the coal ash plant, he brought her to Uncle Gert. Uncle Gert's the taxidermy man, taking in all the dead animals. He started on his post office route when he was younger, picking up whatever he could find, throwing it in his porch freezer. He'd show me and sister growing up, the little animals laying together like mummies on the shelf. But Russ brought this Cinderella in so gentle, unwrapped her out of a rag. I was there watching him lay her on the table, talking like nobody I've ever heard before, asking me what did it mean that he found her, that it must have meant something for him to find her that day. And it almost looked like he was going to fall when he went to put on his jacket. He's so tall and clumsy. I thought it was cute. Last time I saw him, he let go of me and put his hands together, said he didn't want to get too close to me. We've known this whole time that he'd be leaving soon to help with the new plant outside Greenville. He said he really cares about me. He don't want it to hurt too much when he leaves. When I say I need space, I need space, he said. And I know that's why he only wants to see me at Bull Hill, why he won't take me out on no proper date. That's what I should have said to him last time I saw him there. Miss Dina comes in the door with a granddaughter. They buy zebra cakes and stop at my squirrels before leaving. The little girl reaches up at him. I tell them I can take them down if they want, that the little girl can touch them. But Miss Dina just says it's all right and picks her granddaughter up. Ain't that just something, Miss Dina says. She's pointing to Cinderella's crying. Then she turns around and asks me how Daddy's doing. And I tell her about the same like I always say. He's always the same. Just the same. Worse. You know. Well, I'm thinking about y'all, she always says. This is what they all say. Don't reach out to hug me or nothing. Thank y'all. Thanks so much, Ashley. Thank you, Ashley. Thanks, Devin. Next, we have uh, Jessica Jacobs, who lives here in Asheville. She's awesome. Uh, her book, uh, Published with Distance, came out um, and also, she has a new book coming out called Take Me With You, wherever you are going from four-way books next year, right? And uh, she's amazing. Uh, Jessica, come up. Give her a round of applause. Hello. Uh, okay. Hi. Thanks so much for, for having me read. Um, in honor of the New Yorkers among us, um, I thought I would start with a New York poem. I'm going to read some love poems for you this evening. Um, so I met my wife when I was living in New York, but I wasn't really ready to admit it. Um, so we tried to be friends for six years. We were bad at it, luckily. So, uh, what I didn't say during those years you swore I'd forgotten you was that I was my own city, my own New York, and you were a succession of rolling blackouts rolling through me the way a shadow each afternoon unfurled from the one ginkgo tree on my block. A rilled eclipse, a dark slender bar, that mark of division. On the corner where 11th splits custody between east and west, we stood for six years, a foot in either direction. The charge too much for any wire to hold, we passed it from one to the next in a series of cascading failures. Lights hushed from Houston to Battery Park, dark as any July 5th of my Florida childhood, 
barbecues ashed, bins clanking with empties, Roman candles gone to soggy black paper. But once, alone on my dock, I watched a meteor bisect the sky like a thumbnail scoring the tender skin of a plum. You split me again and again. Your sudden shadow cast across the life I thought I was living. You swore I'd forgotten you. I'd only wished I could. So now let me say this. Each time you returned, those nights you tripped all the breakers, it's true. Traffic lights failed and pedestrians fled. Tunnels clogged as bad arteries, bridges thrumming above the glossy throat of the East River. But others, others stayed. Open windows and kicked off sheets. Made love to the music of battery-powered boomboxes on stoops below, where off grills carried from fire escapes to sidewalks. Neighbors shared all the food they could not bear to waste. Such toothsome smells from those feasts against spoilage, those burnt offerings. And later, know there was a moment when every office, every bar, every apartment in my city emptied. And all of us stood in the streets like the children we, taught our, we had taught ourselves not to be. Hands on hips, elbows jutting like wings, heads thrown back, remembering what had been there all along. The night sky suddenly visible. Oh, thank you. All right, and then this is a brand new poem. It's it's kind of a um, reluctant love poem. Um, I don't know if how you all feel about this. I just noticed you all in the back. Hi, can you hear me? Hi, welcome. Um, that um, sometimes my heart is way smarter and more stubborn than I am. Yeah. Okay. So um, this poem is called "Thanks, Stupid Heart." <laughs> Thanks, stupid heart. Like for that time, I'd banished her number from every device I own, only to find the digit scrawled on your interior wall. Diastol, you whispered, relax and fill. But what did you know? Flushing and pumping like a jellyfish going nowhere, stuffed between my lungs' pink wings like an ugly, flightless bird. The trick pony of my brain was ready to wander other pastures, wonder other futures, but you, grown from the same stock as courage and accord, she was your only aim. And faithful, dumb muscle you are, stupid, beautiful heart, you beat only for her. Um. So you'll see when Nicole comes up to read, she kind of foiled me um, in reading this poem because she put her hair up, but she has kind of amazing long hair. Um, and uh, I had been writing all of these these poems. My my um, my neck, the book that's coming out is is all about marriage and love. Um, and I realized I had been writing these like very angsty poems. Um, so I needed to write a poem of joy. Um, and so I thought I'd write an ode, and it seemed like her hair was was an appropriate subject. So. Um, this poem uh, has an epigraph from Pablo Neruda. Other lovers want to live with particular eyes. I only want to be your stylist. Curly, my tangler. 
Who needs Rumpelstiltskin when such treasure abounds? Her gold woven around my bike gears, tangled in my toothbrush, vining every drain, even sometimes found in my mouth upon waking. And just this morning from the bathroom, she called me in. My mama's the only one who ever brushed out my hair, she said, but you're my wife. You should know. I began at the bottom, her curls separating with the thick sound of good cloth tearing. Do you see why I had no friends when I was little, she asked. Mama brushed out my hair each day before school. I eased my fingers for the first time all the way through, asked how that felt for her. Vulnerable, she said. Shimmering out beneath the overhead light, a climbing of kudzu, a symphony of trumpet vines, her hair revealed itself. It was like Velcro, she said. Anything would stick in it. Bubblegum, spitwads, pencils. I'd come home crying and Mama would hold my ugly, frizzy head and say, Baby, they're just jealous. As though her love could make the lie so. When it comes to her, her mother and I have this kind of love in common. Only now the lie has come to pass. My wife, whose hair is the shade of farm-fresh yokes, the color of things rich on the tongue, whose hair sings the plaintive song of bed springs, whose hair is the drifting smoke from a village of chimneys, corkscrews enough for a thousand bottles of wine. A ski slope of S-curves, a grove of twirling maple keys, every playground slide worth sliding. Before a rapt audience, a company of ballerinas cambers their hands to trace out in the air your hair. My dear Angora goat, my cloud of bats spiraling from the cave. All right, so I'm just going to read two more poems for you. Um, a question to ask once the honeymoon is over. Bigger round as my bike helmet and high as my ankle, the box turtle was halfway from my side of the road to the other. The warm sun felt delicious, my legs strong. It was almost to the center line. I hadn't been passed by a car for miles. Figuring if it was still there, I'd pick it up on the way back. I cycled past. Years before, the woman across the street was shaped like that turtle, or more like a toadstool, really, squat bell of a body atop the thin stalks of her legs, milky and bare beneath her frayed black house dress. It hurt her to move, clear even from my second-story window, so she brought her trash out in increments, in small, bursting grocery bags. She tossed each out the door onto the porch, then nudged them one step to the next before easing carefully, painfully herself down, a step at a time. Then she towed them, finally, slowly, slowly, into a crumpled heap at the curb. I left my window to help, then took her trash out every week after. That story. I hadn't yet told it to my wife, had I? But there was the turnaround quicker than expected, 
and I spun to find a beat-down bus trailed by all the fuming cars that hadn't passed me. Steadying my handlebars against the wind, I rode back hard, zigging around crushed squirrels and tire-splayed birds. The turtle was just where I'd left it, but with the top of its shell torn away. The dead turtle, a raw red bull, its blood slashing the twinned yellow lines into an unequal sign, as in A is not equal to B, as in thinking about doing the right thing is not the same as doing it. As in how many times did I watch that old woman shuffle bags down the stairs? Really, how many? Before I went from watching to helping. As in with my wife beside me, I am the woman who does not hesitate to lay down her bike and give a small life safe passage. As in I bike slowly home, told no one. As in... Will she love me less when she learns I am not equal to the person I am when she is watching? All right, well, we'll end with something a little more uplifting. <laughs> um, let me find this. Um, so for those of you who are local, and maybe if you're wandering around this evening, um, there's a, a little ballet studio uh, right down the street um, at Five Points. And it's just always really beautiful because, like, we'll walk the dogs at night and you can see it all lit up and, like, the little girls dancing. And it's, it's just really lovely. Um, on our nightly walk, she takes my hand. Across the dark street, the dance studio is a brilliant lamp a Cornell box set to music and motion. Girls hold each other in swaying pas de deux, a phrase first translated for me as peace of God. That's wrong, of course, but not entirely. For what is it to move in time with another, to acknowledge and learn a body beside your own, the dancing apart and the final coming back together? What is this if not some kind of grace, some human-sized serving of God. Thank you. Thanks so much, Jessica. That was awesome. Uh, next up, we got Michael Bible here, who uh, wrote this new novel, Empire of Light. Uh, so you guys should buy it. Did you bring copies, Michael? Yeah. Oh, right there. I'm, I'm holding with. Did you bring copies? I'm holding with. But uh, Michael's amazing. So we met Michael because uh, we recorded his book, Sophia, that Melville House published. Um, and uh, he's a great guy. And his work has been has appeared in Paris Review, Al Jazeera, ESPN Magazine, New York Tyrant. And uh, I'm really excited about this book. And I'm really glad you're here. Thanks so much, Michael. Give him a hand. Thanks for having me. Um, I want to do a poem, uh, recite a poem, one of my favorite poems, if that's okay. First, um, it's by Robertson Jeffers. It's called Cremation. It nearly cancels my fear of death, my dearest said, when I think of cremation. To rot in the earth is a lonesome end, but to roar up in flame. Besides, I am used to it. 
I have flamed with love or fury so often in my life. No wonder I am tired. No wonder I am dying. We had great joy of my body. Scatter the ashes. And then I'd like to read a, a little short piece that's the beginning of uh, a novel that I just finished. It's called The Endless Idiot. And it has an epigraph from Carson McCullers. It goes, while time, the endless idiot runs screaming around the world. It goes like this. As a golden mulberry leaf fell toward earth, Tucker thought about the people he'd shot and killed. He sat in his truck under the massive tree, which was chrome yellow, and stood out against the drab parking lot as if it had been painted there by a 19th century master. The leaf now had a wager on its back. When Tucker was little, he liked to make bets with Jesus, like he'd pray to Jesus that if a crow landed on the tree, he'd go to church more often. But if it landed on a fence, Jesus would have to give him a million dollars. This time he prayed that if the leaf landed on the grass, he would kill himself. The few seconds it took for the leaf to find its destination might as well have been the whole history of mankind. His life became the leaf, blazed yellow, almost neon, the color of the brightest sun. The long, awful years of his childhood and the fury of the past few hours rested on him with a great and final weight. Whatever invisible hand was pressing on him, he wanted it to stop. He thought killing would have done something, but it didn't relieve anything inside him. The fear and pain were still there, but he was tired now. He hadn't accounted for the physical act of firing and reloading with all the adrenaline pumping. Killing was exhausting. He thought he'd be dead by now anyway, and when the cops didn't come, he just walked out. He didn't know what else to do. He thought he, he, thought he might as well and try and get away, but now all he wanted to do was sleep. Maybe killing himself would be the best thing for everybody, but he was so exhausted he couldn't even lift the gun without a wager. He thought it best to let Jesus decide. That way, whatever happened was Jesus' fault. As the leaf fell, he didn't think of his family, his mother and father. They were minor characters in his story. Instead, he thought of his friend Shane. He was closer to him than anybody in his whole life. He thought about Cleo, too. He didn't love her, but it was something near love. He thought about Japan instead, a place he'd never go. He loved the way they wrote. It was the most beautiful thing he could think of. Faintly, he felt the world tilt toward wonderful, but then it snapped back to reality. He could hear sirens in the distance. The waitress must have tipped them off, he thought. The manhunt was all over the radio. The golden mulberry leaf danced and swayed as it fell. It edged closer to the grass. He grabbed for the gun. Then a gust of wind came through the parking lot and shook the mulberry. Hundreds of leaves rained down on his truck. He couldn't see his leaf anymore. The sirens were getting closer. Thanks. Thanks, Michael. Uh, next up, Nicole Brown, who lives here in Asheville. Uh, we recorded her book, Fanny Says which you guys can all find on TalkingBook.pub. Um, she has been a mentor to Talking Book, and she's a lovely individual and a really important part of the local Asheville literary scene. Uh, Nicole, love you. Thank you so much for reading tonight. Give her a hand. Woohoo! the Talking Book house. 
Thank you for having me. Um, you did good. Did good. You really brought together some good people tonight. Like this is nice. Nice. You know, I used to make bets with Jesus when I was a kid, all the t all the time. I never won, but I used to make bets. So um, the guys have asked me to read one poem from Fanny Says. That's the audio book, and then I'm going to read some new stuff. But um, the audio book they did is. Uh, Book called Fanny Says, and it's about my grandmother. Uh, she was from uh, Western Kentucky, and by all rights, she she raised me. Um, she cussed like a soldier and uh, drove a, a white Cadillac Eldorado. Y'all know what those look like with the long fins. They were always white, and they always had red leather interior. And she would rip out those factory mats and replace it with shag carpet. That's what picked me up from school when I was a kid. I'm like, yeah, that's my ride. So this poem is called Fuck. <laughs> Fuck is what she said, but what mattered was the tone. Not a drive-by spondee and never the fricative connotation as verb, but from her mouth, vowed, often preceded by, well with the U low, as if dipping up homemade ice cream, waiting to be served last so she'd scoop the fruit from the bottom where all the good stuff had settled down. Imagine, not a word cold-cocked or screwed to the wall, but something almost resigned. A sigh, an oh well, the F word made so fat and slow it was basset hound, chunky, with an extra syllable, just enough weight to make a jab to the ribs more of a shoulder shrug. Think of what's done to shit in the South. This is shit, but flicked with a whip, made a little more tart. Well, fuck, Betty Sue. I never did see that coming. Can you believe? Or my favorite, not as explicative, but noun. Fucker, she said. But what she meant was darling, sugar pie, sweet beets, a curse word made into a term of endearment, as in, come here, you little fucker, and give your grandma a kiss. <laughs> if the child was young enough for diapers, he'd still be a shit ass, but big enough to lift his arms and touch his hands together over his toddling toe head. He was so big, all grown, a cute little fucker, watch him go. Fuck is what she said, but what she needed was a drum, a percussion to beat story into song, a chisel to tap honey from the meanest rock. Not just fuck if I know, or fuck me running, or fuck me sideways, or beats the fuck out of me, but said tender, knowing there was only one thing in this whole world you needed to hear most. You fucker, you. Don't you know there wasn't a day when you weren't loved? If you still don't understand, try this. A woman up from poor soil, bad dirt, pure clay. A woman as succulent, something used to precious little water, hard sun, rock crop maybe, threading roots to suck nutrients from the nothing of gravel, the nothing 
of stone, a thriving thing, sturdy, thorned, green, out of mere spite. And because you least expect it, laughing, cussing up a storm. My grandmother, who didn't ask for power, but took it in bright, full, fuck it all, bloom. Dave, did my stomach growl during yeah. that? Was <laughs> he was he was like so on it when when they were recording? I don't know if anybody else in the room had the same experience. And I'd be right in the middle of the poem. I'm like, I got it. I didn't stumble over any words. And then Dave would chime in. And he'd be like, I heard your stomach again. Can you can you repeat that third stanza? I'd be like, damn. Um, so in this new book that. Uh, that I'm working on. Um, Chapbook's coming out next December. Woot, woot. But uh, it's, it's all about animals. So I'm writing about um, what it is to be non-human, uh, uh, animal sentience, and what it is um, we can possibly do, if anything, to save them. And I thought when, when Jesse and I first moved to Asheville two years ago, um, I started by doing a lot of research. I ordered a lot of books on animals, started reading about them. And I thought, you know, I better get close to them, right? So I started volunteering. And here I volunteer at a farm sanctuary called Animal Haven. If anybody's around on Tuesday mornings, you can come help me scoop poo. You can help me fit the prosthetic leg on our favorite three-legged sheep. Um, there's a horse sanctuary in town, a nature center, and uh, I just recently um, got my wildlife rehab license. I have yet to bring home any baby possums, but it might happen any day now. Um, but anyways, all that said is I've just been scooping a lot, a lot of poo because there's nothing else you can do when you have no background in biology and you're like, hey, I'm a poet, I'm here to help you. And they're like, here's a shovel. <laughs> have at it. So this is called the scat of it. The shit of it, the slick of it, the beetles tumbling joy, the bears berry slush of it, the coyotes ghost white dry of it, undigested fur, nothing more, hot pressed into the shape of a turd, that nothing wasted prayer. The shame of it, even the dog shy peering from behind the bush, a spine curved into the not in my yard sign, the teasing to me laughing about the anal express, the poor cat hissing at the vet's gloved hand. The dump and log slop of it, a sad jaundiced yellow or something rich, a deposit of iron, green, nearly black, the color of a forest never once cut and miraculously untouched. Then, too, there's the zoo, regular factories of it, the chimps sling of it against his bars and not too far from him swaying ceaselessly from side to side the elephant. How hers is shoveled up, scraped from the concrete floor, then hosed down, the rest of the heft hauled away. 
Down the road, it's sweet meat for the pumpkin patch and hungry rows of corn. And further on, in the dark of the barn, the halo of it glows white around a chicken's diddle warming next to her eggs. The hen broods in pays no mind to the much more tidy loo kept by those few lucky pigs allowed to stand and walk away from their bed to defecate outside. So different from the lift your tail and go where you stand kind, that of the goat and sheep and rabbit, each pellet perfectly round, a pile of dinky moons eclipsed, a mess of shining beads, a black rosary undone, the prey animal take on it, look both ways and shit quick, no dallying around. The rice-sized mouse of it in the kitchen drawer, even smaller, is that of the roach. The cabinet scrub raw because Mama says such leavings are degrading, meant for the dirty and poor. In the water, an ocean frolics with it. The seahorse trails it from a hole close to where his babies burst from his chest. Watch it frolic like a yellow streamer before it breaks loose and floats. And up the river, the salmon rid themselves of what's left of it with their load lightened. Eat no more. The satisfaction of it. The full belly, the I did my job, now let go. As in what the earth has given, my cells have loved to death and now give back what's left. A cramp of thank you. Here is my offering. A stench maybe for us, but for everything else, a bouquet of gratitude. A scattering that if you look close, you can track, at least until it's finally buried again, whipping with worms, turned in, folded back. There is no shame in it. And if we are disgusted, we have not yet learned. Blessed is that from what we came. Blessed to what we return. I'm going to end with that one poem. It's a little long, but I swear I'm not going to. It's not what we were joking earlier, right? One poem, 67 parts. I won't do that. I won't do that. Um, so after the election, I don't know how y'all felt. But I put on my overalls and my muck boots, and I went to the farm sanctuary where the animals did not care. And um, that kindness was essential to me, as was at the same time I started reading Rebecca Solnit. I don't know if you guys have ever picked up her stuff. She has um, a book called Hope in the Dark. And the, essentially in that book, what she talks about is that hope isn't necessarily a feeling. It doesn't matter if you feel optimistic or, or, or pessimistic. It doesn't matter if you feel hopeful. It matters what you do. That hope is something that you do. It's not something that you feel. And I was like, oh, okay. That I can do. That I can do. So this is called Against Despair. And it's dedicated to the two women who run Animal Haven. Their names are Trina and Barb. So Against Despair. The Kid Goat. Reader, 
Meet the two women who sunk everything they had into taking in broken animals. The gimpy and oozing critters, the ugly, lopsided, tail-less pets, urine-soaked and drooling, zested with fleas, the matted and discarded scrap heaps left growling and bucking, pissing on everything, the good riddance left roped to a chain-link fence. No, I take that back. Instead, I want you to be them. I want you crazy enough to try to fix them, to feed and brush and bathe and dip and sweet milk those beasts whole. I want you to try, to always try, despite the odds, just as you coax the docile, fat, blind pig up on legs that eventually broke from his own inbred weight just as you spritz the mites off a mangy hen that would be limp in the claws of a hawk later that same day. On the hill, a stubborn but sometimes gentle sheep grows cold under a blue tarp, and in your truck is a towel across the back seat for your favorite but neurotic-as-hell dog, how you rushed her to the vet only to see her put down. No let me make this real. Reader, I want you tired, every joint in your body stiff and warm. I want you to finally strip off your filthy clothes. Then I want you jolted from sleep by a cry that in your dreams sounds like an infant wailing and now awake sounds just the damn same. Now, Find that kid goat bleeding in the grainy dark. He's no bigger than a lap dog, and on his fist-sized head are the buds of his horns, tiny like two popcorn pieces of warm bone, two bright spots, the only thing you can see. Flip on the switch. Now you know. With bare hands, I want you to clear the froth from his lolling tongue. I want you to grab a rag, a sponge, the corner of your shirt, anything you can find to sop up the liquid, so much of it you can't tell what's what, be it mucus or bile or vomit or blood, as if every water has been brought up for this giving in, as if his body is already a river and rushing away. Now, use your arms. It takes strength to steady a convulsing of even a thing this young. And then, once his gaze rolls back to white, you know what to do. You know your job. Push together the furred slits of his lids, close the extinguished horizons of his eyes. Now, don't play stupid. You knew this was coming. You've seen it enough times. You're not dumb, just desperate to try to save this little meat goat the farmer dumped at your door, too septic and riddled with worms to even be killed to eat. Now, get on your knees. Mop it up. As you wring out the rags, don't push away what you know of the sun. Let yourself admit the light, how it made his ears pink and transparent revealed the secret veins of leaves, 
how you adored it when they periscoped to your voice and he looked up to give you the small meditations of fresh milk and hay in his mouth. Go on. Get sentimental if you have to. Have a good cry. No one is here. And besides, who would care? Because you try, don't you? You always try. But always that impossible riddle. Always the word riddled with the word worms as if each whip-like body was curled into a question, a wriggling puzzle, a mob infestation of questions, parasites that love a home so hard they turned that kid goat anemic, fevering, stuttering with a murmuring heart, shitting out a writhing pile of larvae and eggs. Little sips, little hooks, little burrows. This was how, little by little, that little goat finally collapsed. Ert arched his throat back as if to be slit, jerked his legs up into the nothing like the fetus he was just two months before. But here is the point. Don't ever let yourself think it didn't matter. It mattered then as it matters now. Because until this morning rose dull on the horizon with this useless, good-for-nothing goat now dead on your floor, regardless, in spite of, no matter, you fed a beast worthless, a real lost cause, not unlike this whole stubborn, beautiful, fucked-up planet about to seize and drown in its own melt. There really wasn't a thing you could do but admit it, if you knew, if you really could say he would not have died last night, but would certainly die tomorrow, you'd force yourself out of bed and do what it is you do. You count his pills, warm his formula over the stove, take out his soiled, rake out his soiled pen, and with arms wide, you'd bring him a fresh bale of hay. Yes, that's right. Now, say his silly goat name, because, yes, every living thing deserves a name, and you called him Peanut, a playful way to say he was a flake of the size he should have been, so sick he did not jump or play as he should, but leaned his tiny face exhausted into your leg. Now, bend to stroke his scrawny goat neck. Say, good boy. Peanut, we've got you. Now, now, there, everything's going to be just fine. You know it's a lie, but no matter. This is your job. It's what you do. It's what needs to be done. Thank you. That was intense. Um, thank you, Nicole. That was beautiful. Uh, next, um, last but not least, um, good friend of mine. Uh, he wrote a book called Comface uh, F250, which was technically the first talking book, so I'm forever in his debt. Um, he wrote a book called Work, which is a memoir. It just came out from CCN, and his new book, Double Bird, 
short story collection from Maudlin House just came out. Um, Bud Smith taught me a lot about writing in the past couple years and being a good person. Um, thanks for coming, Bud Smith. Come on up. Hello, it's so nice to be here in your town. I really like it here. Um, I'm going to move here. Please. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be cool. No, I love you guys. It's like, uh, there are so many towns in America that suck. I'm not going to name names. So, <clears throat> I wrote this book called Double Bird, and it has a severed head with a snake crawling out of it. So that's kind of kind of sets the tone. These are all short stories. Most of them are about animals. Uh, so I'm going to read you a couple little stories about animals. And the first animal is my little brother. <laughs> so he's cool. You guys will like him. He's moving to Asheville with me, too. <laughs> Got to get him a job. Franklin, my brother. My brother Franklin almost drowned in an industrial washing machine, the kind that locks from the inside. When you lock the front, when you put your quarters in, he had his own quarters. And he gave these quarters to a little girl in a powder blue jumpsuit. He was little himself, nine, he was eight. In the machine, he waved through the bubbled glass as she slammed the door. And the reason he didn't drown was because she ran away with his money and bought herself some candy at the store up the block. Another time, Franklin came home soaked in diesel fuel. He'd held his nose and he jumped off the hood of a dump truck and landed in an open 55-gallon drum of fuel behind the municipal garage, and he had a lit match in his hand. This was, the phrase, this was the phase when Franklin insisted on calling himself Human Torch. I was to call him Human Torch. Mom called him Human Torch. We all did. He wasn't Franklin, he wasn't Frankie, and he certainly wasn't Frank. He didn't want to get in trouble soaked in this fuel, and I didn't want him to get in trouble either, so when he came to my window reeking... I went out and helped him burn his clothes behind the trailer park, right there at the edge of the aqueduct where the coyotes often howled. Animals, animals. When my brother shot himself, he was aiming for his heart. This was just last Christmas, Christmas Day. Christmas Day, and it was snowing. Go figure. Franklin missed. Thankfully, because thankfully he's stupid, and Franklin doesn't know what side of his body his heart is on. But I know. And I'm glad our parents were absent as much as they were, or else Franklin would have been closely monitored, and so would I. Franklin would have been taught that little thing, right hand over left side of your body and face the flag. In the room at the far end of the hallway, I can hear my little brother wheezing. He wheezes my name through his busted lung, and he is wild, and he has never had a chance. And Franklin does not know the Pledge of Allegiance. Thank you. You guys like wolves? Yeah. yeah. This, song, this, uh, this song, this album is called Wolves. This is a song off my new album. This, album. this is a song off my new album. Some wolves were driven from the forest where they lived and hunted. Their forest was destroyed and made into a mall with a J. Crew and an Apple store, so the wolves found another forest. But before too long, the forest was torn down too and made into a golf course. And the wolves were completely out of forest. And the wolves did not know how to golf. For a time, they tried to survive in the suburbs. But there was nothing the wolves liked about the suburbs. They're just like you. 
They slept in moldy tool sheds or the back of pickup trucks. They became gnarled and thin in the suburbs. And there was no jobs there either in the suburbs. And even animal control refused to hire them to hunt raccoons and possums because the wolves were not qualified. Everybody else applying for the job had a college education. <laughs> and the wolves were forced to move to the city. Housing was worse there, though, and the entire pack could not find an economical way to split a $3,200 a month two-bedroom apartment. And besides, no one wanted a wolf bigger than a French bulldog, and the wolves were the size of 15 French bulldogs sewn together. <laughs> they applied for public housing. They were denied. The police were always trying to shoot everyone, and the police tried to shoot these wolves, too. But the wolves were faster than everyone, and they were most certainly faster than the cops. And they darted down to the subways, and they sprinted through the darkened tunnels, often leaping over the electrified tracks and just dodging the illuminated eye of a Godspeed train. Then they burst out onto the street. Same situation. New blocks, new cops, more shots fired. It wasn't easy on the city streets, but the wolves survived by attacking unsuspecting hot dog carts or halal carts. <laughs> And finding no natural water, the wolves developed a taste for kombucha and no locally roasted organic shade-grown coffee by Christmas Day. They were living without predators in the sewers. The quiet was worth the filth, so they became sewer wolves. <laughs> they became sewer wolves, and they moved silently through the lowest shafts beneath the city. And each night around closing time, they would raid a dumpster outside Ray's famous pizza, or burst apart the trash cans outside of a McDonald's. But still, the wolves dreamt of blueberry skies and the ground stupid with leaves and moss and the taste of the air and the forest they'd grown up in. They didn't understand opera, just like me, but just like me, they're trying to. <laughs> and one day, having no happiness, the wolves howled amongst themselves about how they used to enjoy, back in the day, stealing toddlers that were left unguarded on the edge of the forest or crawling through a field of flowers back when fields with flowers had been a thing that people did. They howled about how they used to raise these stolen children as their own in the forest, and it used to be fun. Sometimes the toddlers would grow up into fierce warriors and be two-legged comrades to the wolves, helping them hunt and sometimes even coming back to the wolf pack after scouting mission and teaching the wolves the brand new popular rock and roll songs of the day. Other times, the toddlers grew up to be annoying and the wolves ate them. <laughs> the wolves liked that. The wolves didn't have much trouble capturing a baby. There was a park above the sewer lid and it was just as easy as pushing the lid up and nabbing a kid out of the stroller. Then, look at them all down there in the sewer. Look at them. Look at them. Nine wolves standing around, a smiling little baby girl covered in sewage. They were all friends right away. And the parents realized she was gone almost immediately, but they had no clue how. And the police, the police pretended they were without leads because the police didn't think it was in their job description to go down into the sewer. And the Department of Sanitation, who it was passed down to, told the police it wasn't in their job either to go down and battle sewer wolves. So mom was the word. And the parents... The unknown parents who had no idea, they hung signs all over the city, and the parents put up Facebook posts, and they put up tweets, and they made local TV spots, and there was even a Craigslist misconnection, and it said, you were our beloved daughter. While we took a selfie in front of the fountain, you disappeared. 
Now each day, our tears could fill up that fountain. And the wolves kept being wolves, and life was pretty much the same for them, except they were now listening to national public radio, and they were becoming increasingly liberal in their political beliefs. <laughs> and Sewer Baby began to walk. Sewer Baby began to talk wolf. In a way so alien to the human race, she flourished. Sewer Baby played with matches she found, and the wolves sang with happiness when her firelight flickered in their dense, shared darkness. The girl's parents, having lost all hope of return, left the city. A forest had been cleared, and a new highway opened, and seeming to sprout overnight, a house popped up for them out of the dewy sod, and the family wallpapered themselves in this new house, and they plastered themselves in this new house, too. They got themselves a jacuzzi. They saved their money, and after much trouble, they had another baby. The family loved the new baby, a girl, and they named the girl the same name as the girl who'd been taken stolen by these wolves. And each day was a puzzle, briefly shining in whatever was the sunlight, and each night was a maze that was mostly lit by nothing. And so they all forgot. And so they all forgot who they were and where they'd come from. It was too painful to remember how beautiful things had been. So, so fucking sad. It's so, it's so sad. Do I, do I love the wolves? Do I hate the... Do, this story is called 31,028. This short story uh, goes like this. Fuck everybody who emails me. I, Bud Smith, said. <laughs> now, <clears throat> I'm going to read one little, one little more story. I love you guys. I'm going to read one more little thing, but I want to tell you guys... Um, I had like a publisher who was like, oh, I'm going to mail you some books. And they sent me this giant box of books. And now I got to get on an airplane. It's like insane. So I'm selling both of my books for 10, like together, $10. The memoir and the short story. If you're like an insane person who doesn't have Netflix and Amazon Prime and your TV's broken and, and, and you don't have any friends anymore and you want to read a book, I got two for 10. <laughs> so this story is called Tiger Blood. It's the first story in Double Bird. It's the worst story in Double Bird. I put it first, so it got, it's supposed to get better as they go. This is Tiger Blood. I meet a girl in OkCupid, and the first date goes well enough. We sit in a red booth with folds like a heart sliced open, and we stare at each other, sipping icy beverages, the way you're supposed to do with these things. And she says, I've got Tiger Blood. <laughs> oh, like you mean in a jar or something? And she says, no, in my body. <laughs> I say, I'm crazy too. <laughs> I once swallowed a handful of gravel. It helps me digest. And she nods. She says, like a pelican. <laughs> she understands. She understands Jackie. Jackie with her hair, hair gelled back. And I grin and I have spinach in between most teeth. I see it in a mirror later, but she doesn't say anything now. She's chill. Jackie is so chill. And I stir my iced tea and I wish we were plastered. I wish we were plastered having sex. No condom in the back of my pickup truck parked in the shade behind the plaza. We're in recovery. That often happens by accident, you know. It almost always does. What kind of gravel was it, Jackie says. Sharp red rocks? Blue like jetty stones? River pebbles? And I say, oh, come on, Jackie. I was just screwing around. I didn't swallow. <laughs> I don't swallow gravel. And she sits up straight. She sits up straight and she's mad and she says, 
well, why would you say something like that if it wasn't true? And I said, you started it. And she says, I really do have tigers in my blood, though. <laughs> really do. Uh-huh. She says, I'll show you. And we're sober. And I have car insurance now and a current registration and even her driver's license. This is American. I really like this girl. So we leave the restaurant without paying. And we break into the community science lab where we begin our work. We are working in the dark as to not alert the night watchman. We are working by the miraculous LED light of cell phone. And she plugs the microscope into the wall, and it glows. I don't usually do these kind of things on the first date, Jackie says. And I say, it's, it's cool, Jackie. She says, slice me open. <laughs> I want Jackie to like me, so I don't hesitate. I drag a scalpel across her forearm, and she catches a droplet of red on a perfect little glass slide and pushes it underneath the microscope into the only shine in the room. OK, have a look. I lean down, and I look. Well, look at that. She doesn't have happy red inner tube ringlets or plasma lifesavers or even globs of shimmering crimson. She really does have tigers. Bengal tigers, I think, and they're running around on the slide in slow motion. And the tigers chase each other and they play. And some yawn wide and lay down and some sleep and others are already sleeping. Countless tigers in her blood, a sea of them, bounding and rolling and attacking and screwing and fighting and jumping over each other and licking each other's tails and paws, and it was incredible. She was incredible. She was incredible, at least in this one way. But as it goes, we didn't last very long. We had just one other date after that. I took her roller skating. I must not have impressed Jackie very much with my roller skating, and I could not pull magic out of the unknown, and I could not cause any dark room to glow the way that room glow while the watchman was lost roaming other halls, and I could not and would not vomit gravel like a bird does before emptying itself and flying away over endless, endless, endless canyon. Thank you very much. All right, that was it, folks. Thanks so much to Bud Smith, Michael Bible, Nicole Brown, Jessica Jacobs, Devin Kelly, Ashley Brian Phillips, all the writers from all the different places coming here to do a reading with us. Um, talking book, nonprofit, indie audiobook publisher, trying to bring you the best in independent literature via your ears. That's a shitty slogan, but it's true. Um, anyway, thanks so much to them and uh, Dave Burr, the audio engineer, Denny Harris, the designer. Um, Sam Thompson, who helps out with tech stuff. Uh, let's see, who else is hanging out with us? All the different people. Alex Sturgis, who wrote the music you're about to listen to. Um, Keegan Grambois, who wrote the uh, original music. But anyway, so many people involved in this great community. Publishers, writers, agents, artists, uh, dum-dums like me. And uh, we're all in it together, people. But have a great day. Have a nice time. Bye. Like a bishop who has forsaken sympathy Chasing sister squares I was lit before I knew 
Storm was passing over, and the window 